Well, good evening, everyone. How are you? Good. We are uh, continuing our journey through 1 Corinthians, and we're all the way to chapter 8. We started, did we begin this in September? Was it September? We began 1 Corinthians. So, kind of taking a, a slow journey, but I hope it's been fruitful. Well, it's always fruitful, the Word of God is always fruitful. It's been good for me. I've never, I've never uh, preached through or, or studied through at a slow pace 1 Corinthians. So I'm really enjoying this. I've read it a lot. I've studied different passages out of it, but not line upon line, just making my way through it in a study. And so very appreciated to JR and to Andrew and to Brian for the way they bring forth these messages, and I'll, I'll try not to mess it up tonight. I'll try to continue the momentum. <laughs> Does that sound good? Um, let's just pray, and then we'll begin. Holy Spirit, right now as we transition, we want to rem- remain in that posture of worship and adoration before your word. We thank you for the dialogue that was between the Corinthian church and Paul. We thank you for the wisdom that is are in these verses. Lord, I pray that we would hear them. And I pray that I would be able to communicate, not just with clarity, but Lord, I ask that you would take words and open our hearts, not my words, but your words enriched by your spirit, Lord. Take this word, take 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and open our hearts and convict us where we need convicting. Lord, we open ourselves up to your conviction. We say, let the sword pierce our hearts. Let it cut out and do that surgery that we need. And Lord, we ask you for the adoration. Let your word cause us to marvel. Let it cause us to wonder. Let it cause us to to look up. Let let it cause us to see the, the love that you have and the sacrifice that you made. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we begin 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it's actually the, the start of a, of a kind of a flow in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 11 verse 1. That's kind of the, 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 the flow of thought. It's four chapters, three chapters, sorry, three chapters. And they build upon themselves and then Paul kind of at The end of 10 and beginning of 11 circles back, right back to the beginning of 8. I'll just kind of go through this breakdown with you. Um, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13, which we're going to be focused on tonight. Paul's first concern is with the attitude that lay behind the Corinthians' behavior. There's this argument that they're in. Can they eat in the temple? Can they go to the cultic feasts still and celebrate with their friends? And you got to remember these, the Corinthians were raised in these feasts in the temple of Aphrodite and in the temple of Apollos. And, and it was the big social setting. And so they're kind of arguing back and forth with Paul. And Paul isn't so much concerned about the argument, though he doesn't want them going to the temple feasts, but the attitude that they have behind the argument. And so, 
he addresses that in chapter 8, and we're going to look at that tonight. In chapter 9, 1 through 23, the second issue Paul addresses is the authority of his apostleship. Okay? So all of chapter 9 has to do with, he goes into this thing of, of the rights that he has and the, that the apostles have as being an apostle. And they're actually accusing him because he's not taking one of his rights, which is to be supported by the church. He says, this is an apostle's right. This is a minister of the gospel's right. This is a minister of the temple's right to eat from the temple. He compares them to the field. He planted the field. He could choose to eat from the field. But Paul was like, I didn't want to because I didn't want it to hinder the gospel. I didn't want you to think I was a charlatan after your money. But then they turn it around and accuse him, well, if you were really an apostle, you would have an apostle's conviction and you would actually take money from us. It was a weird kind of twisted thing. I'm sure Paul was just like, I was doing this so the gospel wouldn't be hindered. And now you're mad at me for it. So anyway, have you ever felt like that where you just kind of misunderstood? So Paul goes into it. And then in 10, he goes back to this idea of idolatry. And he gets more clarity, or he gives them more clarity. In 8, we're going to see that he says an idol is nothing. And in one sense, that's true. Zeus isn't really Zeus. Aphrodite really isn't Aphrodite as they think of it. And in 10, he goes, but there's something more serious going on. Zeus and Aphrodite, they're actually veils. They're actually disguises for demons. And in your idolatry, in your worship of idols, you're actually participating with the demonic. I mean, Paul's very clear. He says it like straight out like that. So it kind of deflates their argument of if they can do this or not. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22, he just kind of, he goes pretty hard and he says, you know, you, you, can't, you can't do this. You can't mingle like you used to in these uh, very sinful places in the worship of demons. And then he gives them some final words about eating meat sacrificed to idols at the end of 10 into 11 um, outside of the temple, okay? So there's eight, chapter 8 and chapter 10 have to do with eating inside the temple at these cultic uh, annual, monthly, I don't know when they would have them, but these, these kind of big celebration gatherings. And then at the end of 10, he says, but... If you encounter meat sacrificed to an idol in a market, he's like, just don't ask the question. <laughs> just buy the meat. Don't ask the question. And if you find out it is sacrificed to the idol, he's like, you can eat it, no problem. But for the sake of the conscience of the person that's selling it to you and to keep your witness, he actually says, just don't partake of it. Just say, oh, okay, well, I didn't know, and I'll go and buy another piece of meat. He gets very practical at the end of 10. I love it. He's like big, theological. He brings these huge points, and then he says, you know, but, you know, if you encounter meat in the market, just, you know, for the sake of the conscience of the person that's selling it to you, just don't ask the question. <laughs> anyway, I thought that's funny. And then he wraps it up with, with a, uh, a verse that is very familiar to us, but I think after all of that, it kind of opens up a little more. Brian, would you turn me down just a little bit? Because I'm going to want to speak louder than what I am. And so I don't want 
I don't want my shouting to like pierce the eardrum. Guys, can you thank Brian Rankema back there for his worship leading and for volunteering in sound and his wife. Come on, let's go, Dad. Did you just say that? <laughs> That's awesome. And at the very end of 10, Paul says this. He says, here's, here's the big point of, of everything. This is where it's all going. Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. He's talking about eating in the temples. He's talking about, he's talking about eating and drinking in the temples or outside of the temples. He said, here's, here's your, your aim. Here's your mark. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do. He says, do all to the glory of God. So if you step back from your actions, Paul says, is what I'm doing giving glory to God right now? So he just kind of like silences all other arguments that are going to come his way. He's like, Corinthians, let me give you one thing. What you're doing, is it bringing glory to God? That's the litmus, that's the litmus test. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Paul goes in, in chapter 9, he's very clear. To a Jew, I become a Jew. I actually enter back in. I don't eat pork. You know, he's not going to take him to his favorite barbecue place and get pulled pork. He's going to be with his Gentile friends when he does that, okay? He says, to the Jew, I kind of enter back in to eating the way they eat. Why? Because I want to save their souls. Because I want to preach the gospel to them. Because I, I want them to hear me. But to the Gentile, if he's eating pork, you know what? I have that pulled pork sandwich with him. Can you tell I love pulled pork sandwiches? Oh my goodness gracious. Raised in Texas. Thank you, Lord. Barbecue, smoked meats, glory. And then I became a partial vegan. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. He says, give no offense to Jew, give no offense to Greek, and give no offense to the church. And that's what's happening in chapter 8. There's actually offense being given to weaker members, or, or, or they, have, they, have a, they don't have a strong faith yet. And there's these mature members, they're calling themselves mature, but they're using their knowledge in, oh, this isn't really that bad. And they're leading some into sin, and they're leading some astray. So he says, just give no offense. If you're giving offense to the Jew, don't do it. If you're giving offense to the Greek, don't do it. If you're giving offense to the church, don't do it. Why? He goes on. I try to please everyone in everything I do. Now, it's not just to be men pleasers. This is the reason. Not seeking my own advantage, but that many might be saved. That's Paul's whole goal, that many might be saved. And he had a different strategy in Athens, and he had a different strategy in Corinth. But his whole goal was that many might be saved. When he went back into Jerusalem, he had a different strategy amongst his old Pharisee friends. But the strategy boiled down to, I want to preach the gospel unhindered. Amen? That's your overview, okay? If anyone wants these notes, I'm not going to put them online, but you can email me. My email is just marcus at the rock .org, and I can give you that overview. Okay, 
Let's go to verse 1. Now, Paul, Paul, Brian Finnamore <laughs> did a great job last week in taking us through these first verses. I'm just going to hit, hit them very quickly, and then we'll move on. 1 Corinthians chapter one, First uh, Corinthians chapter eight, verse one. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now, when you see these things in quotes, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. Paul's actually answering a letter that the Corinthians wrote him. Okay, it's it's kind of interesting. We are missing two of Paul's Corinthian correspondence to this church, okay? He wrote one letter that we don't have, and then the Corinthians wrote a response to that letter that we don't have, and then Paul wrote a response to their letter, which we do have, that's 1 Corinthians, okay? And then, you can tell where this is going, they wrote a response back, which we don't have, and then Paul writes another response back, which is 2 Corinthians, wait, is that right? Okay, thank you. Was that four Corinthians? Okay, good. So there's a dialogue going on here. And these, these, these uh, the, the New King James doesn't do it, but the NIV, the NLT, the, uh, the ESV, they do it very well. They kind of put in quotes what Paul is pulling out from their letter and answering, okay? So Paul says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. So there's this argument about all possessing knowledge, and we'll get into that in a minute. He says, and this knowledge, (laughs) you can just hear Paul talking, the knowledge you say that you have, it puffs up. But he says, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So again, the Corinthians are going to temples, they're eating food, that has been offered to idols. And they're using this, this knowledge or this freedom that they have wrongly. Okay? They had wrong understanding in the, in the knowledge that they had. And I just want to stop and, and, and say this before we get into what that knowledge was. Our Christian conduct, our behavior in the church and in the world primarily does not come from a place of knowledge. Paul's saying it comes from a place of love. We are to love God with what? All of our heart, soul, mind, strength. We are to love God, and we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And then Jesus gives us a little addendum. He gives us the the new commandment when it comes to loving each other. And he says, hey, I, I want to I take that a little further. He says in John 13, 34 through 35, he says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, the reason Jesus kind of takes it up is because it's just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Now, the cross was before Jesus. I'm sure the apostles looked back at this and went, oh, (laughs) he loved us pretty extravagantly. Oh, he gave his life for us. And then the epistles are just filled with this language of laying down your life, of going 
low, of suffering as Jesus suffered, as entering into his sufferings for the sake of loving your brother. One of my favorite verses when I think of overflowing in love comes from Romans 5, 1 through 5. Let's just look at that real quick. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you are grateful for the peace you have with God? I'm so grateful. There's not enmity anymore. There's not judgment from his part to mine. There's not hatred from my part to his. There's peace between us. Oh, he gives peace, not as the world gives peace. Amen. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. So, very familiar, there's, there's access, we put our faith in Jesus, there's a grace that we now stand in and operate in. And then Paul says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Guys, there's hope for glory in our lives today, and there's hope for glory forever. Whenever you feel hopeless, return to these passages that remind you of the glory That is yours now. Jesus says, I want them to be with me where I am to experience and encounter my glory in John 17. But also think of the glory that is going to be yours in the inheritance of the saints of the light when you stand before Jesus. Go to the book of Revelation. Go to the end and think of the glory of the new millennium and the glory of the new kingdom and the glory of the new creation. So there's glory that is ours. And, but verse 5 says this. I'm, I'm, I skipped some verses there. I just went to verse 5. And this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now just think about that right now. Paul knows that in the Corinthian church, the Holy Spirit has poured out the love of God. The big capital L Agape love of God has been poured into their hearts. And so he's calling them to act, to serve, to, to behave between one another with this love. And it's not just this, this like, it's calling them to an impossible thing. He's like, no, you have the Holy Spirit to do this. I'm calling you to the basis of love in your, in your, in your interactions with one another. Okay, so let's go on. Verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. See, that's in quotes there. Oh, let's go to, I'm sorry, if you can go to verse 4 up there. Oh, I can see my bald spot. Sorry, look at that. Isn't that nice? 36 years old, 37, it begins to all fall out. (laughs) Okay, there you go. Now, every time I look up, you guys are going to be like, oh, there's this bald spot right there. <laughs> That's awesome. For everyone who didn't hear that, Steve said, well, we can't see because JR is blocking it. Did you mean the glare that's off JR? Said, okay, all right, all right. I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to shine. <laughs> Let the light of his countenance shine upon us. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, here we go. Therefore, as to, food, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, 
here's this knowledge again, that an idol, it's in quotes, has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. Okay. So again, this is a response. There was an initial letter, there was an answer from Paul to Corinth, there was an answer from Corinth to Paul, and then Paul's pulling out phrases that they're using, and they're defending, just kind of keep that up on the board just for a second, until, that's not a board, that's a screen. Kind of keep that up on the screen just for a second. Thank you so much, April. You're doing wonderful. I appreciate it. Awesome. Okay. Um, he says, we know that an idol has no real, real existence and that there is no God but one. These were the two arguments that they were using to go back into the temple and to take part of these cultic feasts. Well, there's, an idol has no real existence. Zeus isn't really Zeus. Aphrodite really isn't Aphrodite. Apollo isn't really Apollo. And, Paul, you've taught us that there is no God but one. Like, these are, you said this, Paul, and so they're kind of turning his teaching, what they've learned from him, sitting at his feet. They're turning it, and they're going back to their old lifestyles, and they're using real knowledge to justify immoral actions. Okay? I just wrote this. They were saying, we can eat in the temples because we know that there is only one God and idols are nothing. And this knowledge was puffing them up and it was leading them into pride and they weren't considering the younger in the faith that were going to stumble because of his actions. Okay, let's move on. Verse 5. Now Paul, uh, let's just keep going. For although... There may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So again, Paul says that they're so-called gods, and there's, there's many in the ancient world. <laughs> there's many of these gods, and there's many of these lords. You know, in the Greco-Roman religions, there were about 17 main gods, and then they had, like, gods under them. But about 17 main gods, there was... Zeus, which I keep referring to, he was the king of the gods. There was Hera, which was the goddess of marriage. There was Pisidian, I think I'm saying that right. My daughter who reads Percy Jackson would correct me later, but okay. All the younger, all the parents with, never mind. Okay, Pisidian, the god of the sea. There's Kronos, the youngest, and he's the father of Uranus. And so they just went down the list. There were many gods. And Paul is saying that they're, so-called gods, that the idols didn't actually have an existence that their worshipers believed them to have. But again, he's going to go into, verse, into chapter 10 and say, though they don't have the existence that the Greek people or the people of Corinth think that they have, they actually do have a, there's a spiritual consequence to worshiping them. And Paul says, you're opening yourself up to the, to the activity of demons, to, to, to demonic activity, when you're taking part in these cultic feasts. And I just think of, this is still alive and well in our world today. I think of my friends right now who are ministering in Varanasi, India. Varanasi, India 
is a, is a very sacred city in India. It's kind of the birthplace of the Ganges River. And Varanasi was a god in India, and I forgot what she did. But there's a whole practice based around the city and this point in this river to where people who are on their deathbeds travel to Varanasi so they can die in Varanasi, and as soon as they die, they're cremated and their ashes are poured into the river. And they believe that they'll bypass all the steps of reincarnation and that they'll enter into nirvana right away. So if your whole religion is about reincarnation and you don't know where you're going and you haven't lived maybe like the best life, you know, and you're already like up on the food chain because you're a human, <laughs> you probably have a conviction of like, oh no, I don't, I don't want to start this again. So, and many do. And they travel from all over India and sick people by the droves travel to Varanasi. They're held up in like these makeshift hospices, which aren't really hospice. It's very, you know, they're doing these slow, painful deaths. And they're dying by the droves and they're getting burnt and their ashes are being poured into the river. And it's a very interesting place to live. <laughs> and I have some missionary friends right there with the missionary team. About 12 people, most of them, you know, 30 and under. And they are preaching the gospel in the streets. And they're going into these hospices and they're asking if they can pray for them in the name of Jesus. And they're seeing some pretty miraculous healings and they're seeing the Holy Spirit break in with power, though it's very dangerous because these are very radical Hindus that they're, uh, that they're preaching to. So, but those Hindus believe in 33 million gods. Say 33 million, okay? Now, in Paul's day, for him to say there were many gods, we can say, yes, there, and there are still many gods in the world, so-called gods. But they're really wrapped up and, and bound by the demonic. But we're not off the hook here in the West. Though we don't bow down before in a temple, before an idol, we're still bowing down before many things, right? Yeah. The entertainment industry. How many of you have ever not struggled with having entertainment as an idol? Raise your hand. Good. I'm glad no one raised their hand because I was going to call you a liar. I'm just playing. Money, power, success, sexual immorality. You're, we're opening ourselves up to, to things and serving things that really have demonic power behind them. But in the grace of the Lord, we can be free and we can walk in the world but not of the world and be free and give Jesus to the world. Amen? Verse 6. Yet for us, there is one God. Now, Paul's affirming them here. He's not, he's saying, you know, there's the many gods and the many lords, and, and they have, the idols have no real existence. You guys are using that wrongly. But then he just affirms something here, and I love this. It's like this creedal, it's, it's almost like you're reading a, a creed or a confession of the early church, and many believe that it is. Verse 6, yet says, yet for us, there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things 
and through whom we exist. Now, guys, you can just camp out in verse 6 till next Wednesday, okay? I actually want to encourage you. This verse, allow the Holy Spirit to take you deeper. Pray this verse. Ask questions to the Holy Spirit about this verse. I love that Paul says, there is one God. He has no problem going, there's one God, and then he says, there's the Father and the Son. It's this Trinitarian mindset. The three are one. He doesn't have the Spirit in here. But I love chapter 5 of of Acts. I don't love when Ananias dies because he lies to Peter. But I love Peter's statement of the Holy Spirit. He says, Ananias, you didn't lie to me, but you lied before the Holy Spirit. And then right after that, he says, and you lied to God. So in Paul's mind, there is one God. In our mind, and in reality, there is one God. Three persons. The unity of the Trinity. I love what he goes into here. And he's the Father. Jesus' greatest revelation that he gave us, in his ministry, his, the greatest revelation that came from his teaching was that God is a Father. And he teaches his disciples to pray, not just to, don't pray to my Father. He says, pray to our Father. Call him our Father. I came to reveal the Father to you so that you could become his child. There is a Father in heaven. I just think of the generosity of Jesus that he didn't hold this relationship to himself. He didn't hold this revelation to himself, but he generously poured out the revelation of the Father to us. How many are you? How many of you are grateful for the revelation of the Father? I've had seasons where the revelation that God is my Father freed me and washed over me and changed my mindset. Where I stopped walking with an orphan spirit, but I started walking in confidence that God is my Father. And He's a Father from whom are all things. Nothing in creation has its beginning apart from Him. And in other passages, we know that nothing remains existing apart from Him. In other passages, we we see that from whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and then they're all going back to Him. So our Father is powerful. I drive from Colorado Springs to Castle Rock every day, and I just, I love to take moments and, and, you know, when I have that clarity and when I have, when the Holy Spirit prompts me, and I just, I just look out at creation and I go, it all came from you. And I look at my hand and I went, it all came from you. And I look at the elements that we make things and the wood and the metal, I say, it, it, it all came from you. Everything we see right now. It all came from him. We might have molded it and shaped it a little bit, but it all came from him. We have to remember that. Our Father created everything. Just remember that the next time you're in a financial bind. Your Father created everything. This rose up in me. One of our cars was breaking down. I hate spending money on vehicles. Do you guys like spending money on vehicles? No. It's terrible. And I was just angry. And my daughter was 16 at the time. She was in the car with me, and my car wouldn't start. 
I said, B, lay your hands on the car. We're going to command this car to start in the name of Jesus. If he can make our bodies, he can heal this car. And I just got a little feisty, and I said, in the name of Jesus, start. And she was driving, and she turned the key, and it started. And we were all like, ah! <laughs> She goes, Dad, that's awesome. <laughs> I'm like, trying to think that I know what I'm doing, but I was shocked as well. I loved it. Broke down a week later, but we're not going to go into that. But we, we, we had what we needed for a week, okay? We had what we needed for a week. I was very grateful for it. I love this next phrase. For whom we exist. Or we are for him. There, guys, there is something so biblical. There is something so accurate about how the Lord made you. When you stand in worship or you stand in prayer and you just say, I'm yours. I'm yours. You know why? You exist for him. You exist not for your purposes, for his purposes. You exist for his plans. That's why I love to get into the word and find out his plans and find out, oh, this is what I'm made for. How many of you kind of, you have that experience from time to time of coming alive in the word going, this feels right. This feels like what I'm made for, to be his son, to be an heir of all creation with his son, to be adopted, to be chosen, to be loved, to do good works in his name for his glory. That's what we were made for, guys. And guess what? The party will never end. And I want to encourage you. I want to encourage myself. When we get into those times of introspection and, stud- and, and struggling with depression and struggling with aimlessness, we got to go back to, no, 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 we exist for him. I want to encourage you, have that language in your prayer life. I'm yours. Father, what do you have for me? What do you want for me? Tell me how you love me again. You purchased me, and I am not my own. I am bought with a price. What was I bought for? How can I bring you glory in my job? How can I bring you glory as a mother to my children? But my wife has asked this question time and time again. Lord, in this season, how do I bring you glory in being a mother to my children? And the Lord will speak to her. And she'll share with me things. Hey, I think here's the plan for this daughter. Here's the plan for this son. But it's all unto bringing him glory through her family. She provokes me. I love, how many of you guys have seen The Incredibles? We all have. The first one, when Dash, I think that's his name, and the whole movie he's being told he can't run, he can't be fast, he can't be who he is, da 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 da. And then at the end, they're like fighting and everything, and, and he's like using his strength and his speed, and he's going for it. And there's that one moment he's being chased, and they all stop, and he looks behind him, and then he looks down, and he's running on the water. And then he just laughs. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Have you seen that? That scene makes me cry every time. Because I'm like, he's being who he's created to be. He's finding out who he is, and he's just enjoying it. I think 
That's what we get when we walk in the reality that we exist for him. We find a joy. We find a laughter. Anyway, let's move on. Jesus is our example in this. Hebrews 12 says this. Looking to Jesus, we're to look to Jesus. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus as we run this race, as the verse says before. But then it says, the founder and perfecter of, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now what jumped out at me in this passage today was Jesus wasn't living for himself. He said, not my will, but yours be done, Father. And there was a joy in that obedience that led him to the cross. And there was a joy in embracing the cross, knowing that his father was going to lift him up and reward him. Amen? We find joy, just like Jesus found joy in obeying his father when we exist for him. Oh man, we're not going to get very far through this passage. But we can pick it up next week, okay? And then Paul goes... A little bit farther, he says, and we have one Lord, Jesus Christ. So we have one God, the Father, from whom all things came. We need to remember that. And for whom we exist. Just pray that as you drive home tonight. I exist for you. And we have one Lord, and his name is Jesus. Now, people who do not believe in the, de- in the deity of Jesus, they'll use this, this argument that, well, that word Lord in the Greek means kurios. I think, is that how you say it? Kurios. Kurios. Thank you. JR is our in-house Greek scholar. And I, no, I should have asked him before I used that word. The Greek word kurios, thank you, means, it could mean just like a, like a lord of a house or like the lord of a manor or like the lord of a piece of land. And they'll say, well, Jesus is Lord like that, but he's not God. But in the Greek translation of the New Testament, the only word for Yahweh that they use in translation is this word, curious. Curious. And one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament when it comes to the deity of Jesus is uh, Isaiah 45. Let's just go there just for a second. Isaiah 45, verse 21, says this. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this thing long ago and who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There's a prophecy about Cyrus rising up and freeing the people of Israel that Isaiah prophesies about 700 years before it happens. That's what this is about. And he says, was it not I, the Lord, or Kyrios, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior, and there is none besides me. Now, when the Lord repeats something in the prophets, you kind of want to just pause and take notice. It's God making a big point. He says, I'm God, I'm Savior, and there's no one else. There's no one who can save truly, and there is no other God. And then he goes on, verse 22. Now, he could have just stopped there. But look at the compassion of him. He says, turn to me. He says, I am God. I am Savior. There is no other. And then he says, turn to me. 
look to me, come to me, all the ends of the earth. And then he says it again, for I am God and there is no other. He doesn't say just to the Jew. He doesn't say just to this people. He says all the nations, all the Gentiles, all the ends of the earth, turn to me. Let's go on. And then he says this famous phrase, for to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. It is to Yahweh, it is to Kurios, that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to swear allegiance. Now I think of, I think of Joshua bowing before the angel of the Lord. That's okay. We can sing along with it. It's anointed. I was going to call Luna up and play the piano, but that's even better. <laughs> Just play. Now I think of this like bow. There's different forms of bowing in the Old Testament. There was bowing like out of worship and adoration. I think of Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. He says, hey, I'm not here on any side, but I'm the commander of the Lord of hosts. And Joshua falls on his face prostrate and worships and bows before him. Or I think of Joseph's brothers coming to him before they know he's Joseph. They just think he's the second in command of all Egypt. And they're bringing back Benjamin. And they bow before him in reverence. It actually says they prostrate themselves before him, face down. Now those are two like volunteering, voluntary bowings. But there's another bowing that always comes into my mind when I think of this. And it's Joshua chapter 10. And they're in the land, and they're routing the enemy. And Joshua is asking God to stop the sun to finish the battle. And God says, okay. And he stops the sun. We don't know how long that day goes. But it was long enough till they defeated all of their enemies. It said, God killed more enemies through 100-pound hailstones landing on them than did the armies of Israel. <laughs> That's not a good time in the retreat if you're the army that's running away. You have God fighting on your side. And he's like, oh, it's okay. I got that one. Boo, boo. But then these five kings, they hide themselves in, in a cave. And Joshua brings them out. And he makes them lay down. And he, puts, he makes the generals of Israel put their feet on their necks. And this was a, as a king was conquered in the ancient world, he was made to lie prostrate, and that foot was put on the neck, and then the conquering king had the decision, do I end them, or do I have mercy on them? Guys, everyone's going to bow one way or another to the Lord. We can either bow voluntarily now, but it says the dead will be raised. They will come before the Lord at the great white throne judgment. And they will receive their reward. Now, luckily for us, we get a judgment before that. And a thousand years before that, we get to rule and reign with Jesus on this earth. But guys, everyone is going to bow. And everyone is going to confess Jesus is Lord. This is very reminiscent, right, of Philippians chapter 2. This is where Paul takes this whole thing from. Let's just read Philippians chapter 2 and then we'll be done. It says this, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we only got about four verses in this week, but why don't we just stand? I'm going to pray for us, and we'll be done this week. Two things I'm going to pray, just for the love of God to fill our hearts and that we would operate in love with one another. And then also that our eyes would be opened to the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son as who they are. Amen? So, Lord, we just ask you right now that love that you have poured in our hearts that we are to operate and we are to act toward one another. I pray that you would fill us and help us this week. Holy Spirit, lead us into love. Lead us into compassion for those you have put around us. And let us not have biblical arguments that would free us from loving our brothers. Lord, I ask you that a fountain, an overflow of love from the Holy Spirit inside of us would rise up. And we would not prefer our own interests, but we would put others before us. And Lord, as Paul declared that there is one God, renew us in our revelation that you are a Father, that all things are from you, that you have all power, and that we exist for you. And Jesus, we thank you that you are our Lord. We thank you that all things came through you as the agent of creation. And that is through you that we live and we move and we have our being. Jesus, come and empower us through faith to give ourselves to God afresh, to give ourselves to God, and that our whole existence would be about serving your purposes and your commands. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Awesome. Love you guys. If you have children, I kept you a little late. Go and pick them up, and we'll see you guys next week.